I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I'd hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. We are wrapping up this month's theme, the return of, wait, what? That's our selection of some head-scratching titles that make one pause and ask for clarification, which is just the kind of fun we love to have around these parts. This week, we are closing things out with an oddball comedy. Director Michael Pressman and star Dan Aykroyd's 1983 bizarre offering that is Dr. Detroit. Join us! I don't know about you, but sometimes I just want to take a brain vacation. You know, pop something in that's not going to challenge me in any real way and just be something fun, lighthearted. Now, admittedly, when I saw this film years ago, I came in with fairly low expectations, and thus, I was pleasantly surprised with the results. I was entertained, I didn't really have to give it too much thought. But I'm me, and I understand that. And when I'm watching this movie, it did lead me to have certain questions. And most of those questions were framed around what, how, and most importantly, why? This week's film is not something that I would tell you is life-changing, nor would I tell you that it ranks amongst the list of things that are must-see. Rather, this is going to be a quaint, and especially by today's standards, cute film that tries to pretend that it has a much harder edge than's really there. But it's really all just a bunch of sweetness and fun. Now, what I find more interesting about this week's film is just how Universal Pictures, as well as most members of the Hollywood community, thought that this was going to be a massive surefire hit. And based on everything we see here, I understand on paper it should have worked. You have a popular comedic actor, you have a gifted director, and you have a respected trio of writers involved. So how could it possibly go wrong? I guess maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves.
So if you recall, from our coverage of the Blues Brothers, go back and see episode 35. Post its massive success, the partnership of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd rolled onward with more touring as their Jake and Elwood persona. Belushi did take a quick break to pursue a solo film. He shot the romantic comedy Continental Divide, and that's a future episode for sure, in 1981 with actress Blair Brown. It was a modest hit, but Belushi was able to stay clean and behave himself during the shooting, which was a major plus. Possibly due to that being set in the remote Washington state, standing in hard for the Colorado Rockies. All of that changed, though, when Belushi and Aykroyd were reteamed for an adaptation of Thomas Berger's 1980 black comedic novel, making the film Neighbors, which also is probably going to be a future episode here. The film was a changeup for the duo. Aykroyd was going to play the loud, boorish character of Vic Zek, who moves in next door to Belushi's uptight and bookish neighbor, Earl Keyes, and slowly begins to drive him insane. Shot on Staten Island in New York, it is here that Belushi quickly fell into his old habits and started doing cocaine again on set, fighting with the film's director, and hey, to be fair, at least on that set, so did Aykroyd, and all of that led to delays in production. The film itself would get pushed back and eventually released in December of 1981, and for the time, it remained a modest hit for Columbia Pictures, in spite of all of those headaches. The pair just kept proving that they were bankable at the box office, but unfortunately, it was a partnership that wouldn't last. Belushi died on March 5, 1982, the result of an overdose brought on by the use of a speedball, the wildly dangerous mixing of cocaine with heroin. At the time, Aykroyd was actually getting ready to begin working on a solo film of his own, but losing a friend and a partner that created more pressure on him, and suddenly, it was expected that he would deliver a funny excursion here at the box office with people questioning, understanding that Aykroyd was funny and a great ensemble player, but wondering aloud if he would be able to carry a film as a lead. Universal Pictures, though, had faith in Aykroyd, and they made a very sensible move. They got a little help from some top writers in comedy, and they came up with a vehicle for the actor, and then paired him with a well-seasoned comedy director to work off of. For the writing, the power trio was selected, consisting of Bruce J. Friedman, Carl Gottlieb, and Robert Boris. They all came together to craft the script. Friedman, was schooled in black comedy, and at this time, he had written several novels and short stories. Hey, they had adapted one of his short stories to make the base tale that would become 1972's The Heartbreak Kid, and he had penned the screenplay for 1980's Stir Crazy, which was a major hit for Columbia, starring Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. And not to mention the, the fact that Friedman himself had fathered the brilliant author Josh Friedman and the amazing artist Drew Friedman to boot. Carl Gottlieb had come up with the improv troupe The Committee out of San Francisco, where he worked with greats like Peter Bonners, Del Close, and John Brent, before going off to bounce around the Hollywood scene in the early 1960s. And he had gotten into writing for TV comedy, starring first with the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and then he had moved on to write for shows like SNL, and by way of his Peter Bonners connection, he got to work on Bob Newhart. That led to writing for The Flip Wilson Show, writing for The Odd Couple, and then rounding things out, he wrote for All in the Family. 
Gottlieb would go on to pen just a small screenplay for a very little film, 1975's Jaws, which cemented him as a hot commodity in the Hollywood community. Robert Boris himself had brought his expertise in writing some hard-edged drama, having penned the Robert Blake Police procedural Electra Glide in Blue. That's actually a really great movie. And he was just coming off of working with the film's selected director on the comedic drama Some Kind of Hero, which starred Richard Pryor. Michael Pressman had cut his teeth with the 1976 exploitation comedy crime film The Great Texas Dynamite Chase, and he followed that up with the first sequel to The Bad News Bears, The Bad News Bears in Breaking Training. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? as well as working on the aforementioned Some Kind of Hero. For his part, Pressman and Aykroyd actually got along very well on this production, with the former joking in an interview that when he sat down with the New York Times, they were meeting to put together the script, and Aykroyd ended up staying with the director for over a week. And that's where Pressman was recounting that his healthy habits had started to rub off on the actor houseguest. He began the week staying with Pressman, eating two Big Macs and chocolate shakes for dinner, and he ended up his stay in the house dining on sliced cucumbers with cottage cheese. Indeed, after dealing with the manic behavior of Richard Pryor on set, Pressman found his time working with Aykroyd to be a breeze by comparison, noting that he could be eccentric, but he considered him to be an incredible performer. With this team in place, naturally, the subject matter would have to be selected. So what better topic to focus on than the story of a wound-tight academic who just happens to become the patsy for a cowardly pimp, and he finds himself suddenly thrust into living a double life, attempting to maintain a stable of high-class escorts while balancing his duties as a professor of medieval chivalry at a struggling Chicago-based college. I know, I know, you've heard that story before, played out dozens of times, but this time it's going to be different, because it's going to be featuring Dan Aykroyd, his patented comedy, and it was going to be the first mainstream introduction to the notion of the player's ball. Now, for those of you who are part of polite society and who have not been steeped in such marvelous bits of tawdry history, the player's ball is an annual celebratory gathering of pimps that was first formed in 1974, founded by the renowned, now ex-pimp and self-proclaimed man of God, the Archbishop Don Magic Wand. Remember, kids, green's for the money and gold's for the honey. What? What are you looking at me like that for? What? Don't you remember back in the day, in the early aughts, when he was hanging out with Snoop Dogg on Pay the Cost to Be the Boss? And he announced that he had entered a new Macalennium? Oh, you weren't born then. Oh, I see. Well, here, you, you just keep listening to this pre-recorded piece, and I'm going to go weep softly into this Savage Garden t-shirt while I mourn my misspent youth. The Player's Ball was initially an idea that stemmed from Juan and a few of his fellow pimps taking in screenings of the 1973 blaxploitation film The Mac, which was directed by Michael Campus and starred a young Max Julian and Richard Pryor. Now, my opinion, as a piece of blaxploitation filming, it's actually a solid bit of cinema, and it has some actual merits. 
As a film, though, I, I personally find it rather interesting that Juan and his fellow purveyors of flesh would be so into it, because it covers the rise and the fall of a wannabe pimp by the name of Goldie, who eventually, through the course of his desires to become the best, he loses his friends, his family members, and ultimately he is forced to leave town, all due to the negative repercussions from his lifestyle. In short, it's not a very happy story, and it doesn't really paint the pimping lifestyle in a happy light. Apparently, the story didn't matter. The part that Juan and his particular focus was on was the scene where the film's characters all get together and attend a player's ball that they were holding in Oakland, California. Thus, the following year, in 1974, Juan and his compatriots organized the first formal and official Players Ball right here in good old Chicago, Illinois. A place to recognize <clears throat> outstanding achievements in the field of pimping, so to speak. Pimps around the country would come gather together, outrageous wardrobes would be put on display, crazy cars would be shown, ostentatious jewelry was flashed about. The whole evening would be capped off then with the naming of the Pimp of the Year. It also conveniently was held in November, making the excuse for the gathering to be an official celebration of Don Magic Wand's birthday, should anyone ask, of course. Because, shockingly, when such events would happen, they would also be popular with members of the local vice squad as far as the law enforcement community was concerned. They'd love to sort of use that gathering to make some arrests. Does this still go on today? <laughs> Shockingly, yes. Many a documentary has been made about the Players Ball over the years, and how it's moved around in locations, how celebrities have come to perform at the events. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way saying I'm endorsing a celebration of pandering by any stretch. But subcultures within society are inherently interesting to me, and for good or ill, this event that still runs today allows for a very interesting window into a very strange world. For my money, if you want to dig into the subject, 1999's American Pimp, done by the Hughes Brothers, touches on that culture and features the ball prominently, and it's a great documentary, so there's a tip from me. But hey, the important thing is, now you know. The cast put together here is a deep bench of some really fantastic character actors. You got Howard Hessman of WKRP in Cincinnati fame. He's here as Smooth Walker, the cowardly pimp who bamboozled Aykroyd's character Clifford Scridlow into taking over the stable of ladies and assuming his debts. We got T.K. Carter here of The Thing and it seems like old times fame. He's here as the affable Diavolo Washington, the stable's chauffeur. As for the ladies, we have a young Fran Drescher, Donna Dixon, Lydia Lee, and Lynn Whitfield. All are the gals who find themselves attached to Scridlow. Needing to balance with a humorous yet solid villain, Kate Murtaugh was tapped to play the role of Mom the evil madam gangster who's trying to muscle in on the operation. 
She had a long career on television and has shown up in some great B-movies like Switchblade Sisters in 1975 and 1977's The Car. But for those of us who are a certain age, you're going to recognize her as being the iconic waitress Libby, who graces the amazing 1979 Breakfast in America album from the band Supertramp. Throw in Andrew Dugan, Parley Edward Bear, Robert Cornthwaite, Glenn Headley, the great James Brown, and of course Peter Aykroyd, taking advantage of starring with his older brother, and you have a force to be reckoned with. With a budget of $8 million, filming began over the summer of 1982, first on location in both Chicago and in the outlying suburb of Evanston, and then pickup shots of the university ended up being filming in Los Angeles at USC. Original songs got recorded for the film, first with famous composer Lalo Schifrin brought in to do the music, and hey, if you don't know the man, do yourself a favor. His soundtracks are fantastic. He fuses orchestral arrangements with awesome bossa nova beats and smooth jazz licks. The layperson would know him from his iconic theme for the TV series Mission Impossible. Hey, for my money though, his main title work on the theme of 1974's Magnum Force, that's in a class of its own. Go listen to it, it's great. But for you fans of pop music of the day, don't worry, there's some great new jams here created just for this picture as well. The band Devo was tapped to write the title track, Dr. Detroit, as well as having singer Patty Brooks wail on the soundtrack, and of course you get the great James Brown performing a spirited new version of his Get Up Off of That Thing. Plus, Aykroyd himself would of course go on to perform several tracks, and while I do love Aykroyd when he performs by way of the Blues Brothers and that sort of related material, this is definitely more akin to the work he would go on to do on, oh, recording things for films like Dragnet. So I guess for some of you that's a good thing? Regardless, geez folks, you've been ever so patient as I've been running my mouth. What do you say I stop my yakking and we get to that trailer? Hello, I'm Dan Aykroyd, and welcome to this fine motion picture emporium. It's nice to know you're here tonight, rather than at home shoving cheap little plastic cartridges into cheap imported video systems that keep you and your family hostage in your own home or apartment. Now, let's face it, big screen entertainment is what it's all about. We've enjoyed it for years. Movies are great. There's nothing like a good movie, or even a bad one for that matter. Remember the classics, though, such as Dr. No. Dr. Zhivago. Now, at last, Dr. Detroit. Scribblow never expected to be anything but a humble scholar. Nothing's going to change my life. My life is just set. Until one night, he came upon four ladies in distress. Oh, yeah! And to protect their honor, uphold the law. Step aside, last year, you'll be eating my food. And fight for the American way. He became the fancy dressing, flashy dancing, death-defying, jacuzzi dipping. Don't forget power walking, systems analysis, rock climbing. Dynamic defender of decency. Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit. Say what? Dr. Detroit. I can feel my hair grow. 
Detroit is Dr. Detroit. This is the best time I've ever had in my entire life. Do you hear me, world? Pimp. Smooth Walker, as played by Howard Hessman, is driving down the streets of Chicago with his chauffeur, Diavolo, as played by T.K. Carter, and his stable full of ladies, Karen, Monica, Jasmine, and Thelma, played respectively by Fran Drescher, Donna Dixon, Lydia Lee, and Lynn Whitfield. When they spy and then begin to mock a geeky-looking man power-walking his way down the street at a brisk pace... Revealed to be mild-mannered Professor Clifford Scridlow, as played by Dan Aykroyd. After dropping the ladies off, Smooth and Diavolo find themselves being boxed in by a number of cars belonging to a ruthless madam who goes by the name of Mom, as played by Kate Murtaugh, who ends up running her criminal enterprise out of her cab service. She brings Smooth in and begins to strong-arm him for the 80 grand that he apparently owes her. But she agrees to go easy on him and then just take over his entire operation, all of his ladies, his penthouse, and then she'll spare his life. Quickly thinking up a fast lie, Walker invents an imaginary partner who he claims has been strong-arming him out of all of Mom's rightful money. Hi, Mom. It's a pleasure to see you, as always. You owe me $80,000. Huh, sixty. I'm a couple of months behind. Eighty. The twenty thousand extra is a late payments penalty. There are lots of other penalties, you know. Look, Mom, I'm doing my best. I mean, I, I got over. Shut up. The only reason you're walking around with both knees is because you got a class act. I'll tell you what we're gonna do. You give me your money, the girls, and everything else you got. We'll call it even. What about me? I'll let you live. <laughs> Quiet! Mom, I mean, you know how things work in this town. Now, if it was up to me alone, I'd be thrilled to settle this thing with you, but, well, I, I got a new partner. Another partner? This guy, this dude from Detroit, uh, he just moved in on me. Detroit? Oh, are you kidding? I know people in Detroit. Not this guy. I mean, he's, he's too big. He's too bad. He's as bad as you are. Maybe even badder. I'm scared, Mom. And that's why I, I go along with the doctor. The doctor? Yeah. Doctor. Doctor Detroit. I don't know if he's really from Detroit. Maybe that's just a handle he uses. You mean you let this jerk-off muscle in on Mom? You just let him in without... Just let him in? I'm scared, Mom. He's a scary guy. I gotta meet this doctor. I'll, I'll see if I can arrange a meeting. But do me a favor, Mom. Just leave me out of it. I've suffered enough. Okay, boys, turn him loose. If he gets out of line, you can have him for lunch. Mom buys into the lie, and now Walker is desperate to find some patsy that he can leave with his entire operation and then skip town. While his entire crew are out for an evening discussing what their next options are going to be, they see the same power walker from before, Professor Scridlow, who is on his way for a pleasurable evening out, enjoying some fine Indian food and then planning to treat himself to a foreign film.
Smooth invites him over, as his guest, to dine with him and the girls. They flirt with him, they tell him that they're all in the entertainment industry, and they ask him to join them for a wild night out on the town, instead of going and seeing some stuffy old foreign film. Having a fun time with these guys who think he's cool, and getting to talk to pretty girls, Skridlow jumps at the chance, joining them for first the meal, and then some drinking, dancing, and eventually some light drug use, all before returning back to Smooth's penthouse, where he tries to get the young professor to get into the business with him. How'd you like to come into this business? The entertainment business? Exactly! want to do is share my good fortune my my involvement with other people my world oh, I, I don't know see i have a business uh, i teach comparative literature at monroe college i'm a full assistant professor now I, my father's chancellor of the college i i'm, I'm committed think about it cliffy just think about it your own business your piece of the American dream. Nice company pad. The best employee roster this side of heaven. Thelma, Karen, Monica, Jasmine. Now that's entertainment. And they'd all be working for you. All for you. I, 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 it's all very sudden. I, I, I responsibilities. I, I, I. Well, soak. Gridlow enjoys a night of hot tubbing and carousing with the ladies, and then arrives home bone-weary after a night of partying to attend a faculty meeting, where the struggling college for which he teaches at, Monroe, is undergoing some real financial straits. His father, Arthur, as played by George Firth, is the chancellor of the university, and is desperately counting on his son to put together a winning gala event that will woo financial donations and help keep the university afloat. Smooth, in the meantime, has already made his final play, having Diavolo beat him up to look like he's been worked over by this unseen partner, allowing Smooth to show up at Mom's, telling her that he's going to leave town. The business and all the money, it's hers, as long as she can get it away from Dr. Detroit. Mom is cautious, but she lets Smooth go, and begins to send feelers out to learn who this new player in town exactly is. It's during Skridlow's faculty meeting that the girls start to call him, asking him for help, seeing that Smooth has told them he's officially now their new manager. The first order of business is to abandon his meeting with the fellow faculty members and head downtown to bail Thelma out of jail on a solicitation charge. Posing as a loudmouth southern attorney, he manages to get the judge overseeing the case to drop all charges, quickly hustling Thelma out before it becomes clear that the young African-American woman is not his sister as he has initially made her out to be. This apartment 20 and 1. Shh. Step aside. Like here, you'll be eating my food. What is going on? Exactly. 
Your Honor, what is going on when a flower of the South, a decent girl with a beautiful, good family, is arrested on her way home from her niece's confirmation and, and booked and incarcerated like a common woman of the streets? I'm talking about Thelma Cleland of the Cleland Parish Clelands of Bay St. Luke, Louisiana. Excuse me. Where our father, Colonel Judge Brian Cleland, presides over the Cleland County Fifth Circuit bench. Now, I demand that you release this girl right now, or you'll all taste the business end of a buggy whip. Bailiff? Yes, sir. Get your ass over here. You got a case number? Yes, I do. Uh, 20569er, A Alpha R Ranger. Okay. Now, just exactly what is your relationship to the arrestee? Well, sir, the young woman is my sister. I know you can believe that the family honor is at stake here. You strike me as a gentleman, sir. Surely you must understand. Well, of course I understand. My people were related to Jefferson Davis on my mother's side. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it indeed. I knew it. A son of the South. Son of what? Of the South, sir. The Confederacy. Uh, Your Honor. What? Loitering with intent to commit prostitution. Lewd behavior soliciting for an unlawful act, bail at uh, $350, Your Honor. Uh, I can't believe my ears. This is an outrageous. Let me see that thing. I mean, this is outrageous, ridiculous. Let me see that. Well, I, I demand satisfaction. Get the arresting officer in here. I will tar and feather the scalawag. Hold on, Mr. Cleland. Hold on. I can release your sister on her own recognizance and dismiss this case in the interest of justice. Well, thank you. It served my family well, so we'd be very, very grateful if... You like shrimp? Indeed, I do. Yeah, well, fine. You come down to Bayou say, look, we kicked you up a whole mess of shrimp. We got some shrimp in that family. Uh, how about town, Thank you. Scridlow returns to the penthouse and has a serious sit-down with the girls and Diavolo, learning that Smooth has made fools of all of them, and if they don't figure out a way to keep perpetuating this lie, they're all going to be doomed. When one of Mom's thugs comes around, Scridlow leaps into action, threatening the men with bodily harm and announcing that he is the attorney for Dr. Detroit, and he will set up a time for Detroit and Mom to do business together, while they come up with a better plan, of course. Thus, Diavolo and the gals work to help Scridlow balance his day-to-day -day duties, teaching, prepping to host an elegant dinner for the potential donors, and they go about doing so by procuring some Kentucky Fried Chicken and then hitting it with a blowtorch and covering it with a variety of gravy, all while telling folks that they're feeding that it's just fancy Indian food. For his part, Scridlow ends up donning flashy outfits, wearing one of his medieval gauntlets on his hand, putting on thick, fake glasses and a blonde fright wig, and prepares to go meet with Mom in an auto wrecking yard. All right, now... Which one of you is mom? <laughs> Punctuality is a virtue, my good madam. Let's chew the fat. Just what that's supposed to mean? Oh, nothing personal, love chunks, but can we get to it? You know, I hate to come down from Wayne County. I have businesses in Lansing. I have muffler shops, chicken chains. I got slums to collect the rent from. I have a chiropractic practice. I make adjustments to the human spine. And this little trip has cut far too much into my professional time. I figured that since you're hustling my turf, we should talk. I run this town. Ah, ah, lurking in the dark, nasty things, come out. Okay, fellas, come on. Come out. 
Come on out here. Yeah, that's right. Out here where, where the doctor can see you. Hey, look, come on, Scriplo. Be cool, man. Be cool. Don't blow it, man. You want to move in on me without permission, without consideration? You got to pay. The doctor doesn't pay. That's it? The doctor doesn't pay, and he doesn't worry. Now, Mom, if you want trouble, I am talking about scorched earth, no survival, wholesale destruction. Oh, God, Oh, my God. Body bags and fire, trouble, and you just keep coming up. The entire party is forced to flee when Mom's men open fire on them. But they manage to evade her, and they run off into the night, still keeping their operation going, and the girls free. Of course, as luck would have it, the next night is the college gala, which is going to be held at a downtown hotel in Ballroom A. That's where they're hosting a prestigious Monroe College dinner. And then in Ballroom B, that's where a hosting of the annual Players Ball is being held, a raucous party where all of the pimps and their ladies are meeting to drink and dance and strut their stuff. This, of course, necessitates Skridlow to run back and forth between the two rooms with multiple costume changes, being both the MC for the college event and somehow being crowned Pimp of the Year at the ball, after being in this line of work for less than 48 hours. Mom and her goons arrive, and she's able to quickly deduce that Dr. Detroit and Professor Skridlow are one and the same, and a fight breaks out when she encounters him in the hotel kitchen. Mom and the good doctor taking up long shish-kebab skewers and begin dueling with them as if they're swords, bringing the two rooms together to watch them as they battle across the hotel. Skridlow is finally able to get the upper hand, but he ends up sparing the rough madam. Okay, finish me. I'm not afraid to die. Go ahead. And I am fortunate in battle and merciful in victory. Madam, I'll let the room decide. My good people! What'll it be? So be it! You're finished in this town, Mom. Through, banished, exiled in your community. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor's a compassionate man. Throw this trash bag out and never let her darken Cook County again. here please one million dollars and i thought you were cheap i didn't mean i thank you sir and, and the college thanks you and my parents thank you and the doctor thanks you but the doctor is no more he existed only to banish an evil presence and let it be known to all here that the damsels whom mom would have held captive are free. My ladies, Karen, Thelma, Monica, Jasmine, you are beholden to none. And Diavolo, my trusted comrade, perhaps we may ride again. For whatever intimidation and injustice vie with decency and honor, let the doctors arise. And arise they must, for within every one of us there is a doctor, a dormant doctor, a supreme arbitrator can be summoned to intervene when crises threaten the stabilities and well-beings of our heartlands. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's party! Yeah. 
The film ends with Monroe College being awarded the endowment funding it's been seeking from a wealthy donor, in no small part thanks to the partying with some pretty girls at the previous night's gala dinner. The faculty and the pimps all dance and dine together as James Brown pumps out the jams. All the characters get happy endings, with Clifford being revealed to go on to marry Karen and live happily ever after. As the credits begin to roll, fancy flashing lettering appears, touting that Dr. Detroit will indeed return in Dr. Detroit 2, The Wrath of Mom. Jeez, where do we even begin? Well, here, let's start with what doesn't work for me. Aykroyd's inane shenanigans. I understand. He's a concept of, you know, this shy, reserved character who comes to life when he has an alter ego that lets him cut loose and be more of his true self. I'm actually on board with that. It's got a nutty professor vibe to it. Scridlow certainly can act the part, but as you can see in the scene where he manages to get Thelma's charges dropped by doing his own corn pone version of the classic Kenny Delmer character, Senator Cleghorn, uh, or for you lovers of animation, the inspiration for the Foghorn Leghorn character that we see in Looney Tunes or Merry Melodies fame, the scene works great. It's funny, it's a nice bit of chewing the scenery, there's a lot of tomfoolery going on. I really enjoy it. So what's the problem? Well, honestly, it's Aykroyd's character of the Doctor. The funny, weird hair, the horrible clicking of the gauntlet. There are moments that are funny that he's in the scene, but not when the doctor's really talking. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm so, so very touched and pleased to be honored in this way. But uh, unfortunately, I have a business uh, in another part of the hotel, a prior commitment, actually, a, a small chiropractic service I was supposed to perform. <laughs> but uh, if anybody is a king here tonight, it is this man... Mr. Try Me, Mr. Please Please Please, Mr. This is a Man's World. I give you the hardest working man in show business, ladies and gentlemen, James Brown. With thick glasses, again, that crazy blonde wig, sporting a lime green jacket, a medieval knight's gauntlet, holding a medical bag, all with those shiny white shoes. Scridlow's doctor looks more like a salesman fell out of an Orlando convention circa 1973, and what's more, his wild antics and conversational style are just grating. He's not scary. Well, I mean, check that. He is scary. He would be scary now if you saw him, but not in the way the film wants us to think he is. This felt more like a kind of slipper school, safety scissors territory category. Not a menacing gorilla style pimp on the prowl. No, just a crazy person. Kate Murtaugh's mom works really well as a villain because she looks like a sweet older lady who instead barks out orders and doesn't take any BS. To me, this should have been the perfect opportunity for Aykroyd to cultivate a character who was cool, you know, was smooth, calm. He's not afraid of this woman in the slightest, and he's not going to break a sweat, even though he, as a character, should be terrified. But that's not what we get here. Instead, we get weird, inane chatter, strange tics, and probably the greatest sin, it becomes a little confusing. 
it's kind of like the writers got fixated on the notion that Skridlow had to be one thing and one thing only. A wacky persona. And in doing so, it felt like at least... Well, hey, since we have Ackroyd on screen, it's almost like we're watching an extended cut of one of his SNL sketches, rather than getting a fully fleshed out character. Like, I don't know, one way, I guess would be to put it, is it's like the Fred Garvin character. It's like we got a Fred Garvin film that none of us were clamoring for. The same Mrs. Potter who's vice president in charge of loans for the Franklin National Bank of Chicago? Yeah, that's me. Hey, this is for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, may I come in? What for? Uh, well, you see, ma'am, when a VIP like yourself uh-huh. comes to Moline to do business, it's customary for the company to send a gal up to the room. Compliments of Great Lakes feed and grain. <laughs> and, well, since you're a gal... The company sent me, Fred Garvin, male prostitute. Uh, I don't I don't think you understand, Fred. I'm not uh, that kind of girl. Let me reassure you, ma'am. I can assure you professional hygiene, uh-huh. discretion, and animal gratification. <laughs> I have never had to pay for that in my whole life. Well, don't worry about it. Great Lakes Feed and Grain is picking up the tab. You've got me for the whole night. <laughs> hey, uh... Hey, hey as for uh, horses, young lady, hey, no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Mr. You're spending the night with Fred Garvin, male prostitute. Another part of this that doesn't quite jive for me, Diavolo. As a character, he's just so affable and so funny, and T.K. Carter portrays him amazingly. Yet, it doesn't make sense as to why he would go along with Smooth Walker's plan. Yeah, he's getting paid, but if the plan succeeds, as Walker hopes, Mom takes over, will bump off Skridlow, and will take control of the girls. And Diavolo, if he's lucky, is simply out of a job. At worst, he faces grievous bodily harm or death along with Skridlow, which always kind of struck me as kind of confusing. Why would he willingly participate in his own setup? It's a bit baffling. That said, I do love me some Howard Hessman, and I understand why technically it's not right for the logic of the story here, but I do wish his character had stuck around just a little longer, just to have the joy of watching him be more of a cowardly character. Still, moving off all of that, there is some genuine good things to love about this film. You do have the classic trope of having a protagonist attempting to split his time between two equally demanding and important commitments. This is perhaps, you know, a little bit of a different league than we had with Greg Brady trying to take two girls to the dance at once, but close enough. You got Skridlow attempting to juggle his teaching duties at Monroe College and then keep up with his stuffy academic mixers while trying to maintain his newfound stable of ladies. That does lead to some nice setups. Hessman is great with his mugging and his weaseling out of commitments. All of the ladies here do an excellent job, particularly a young Fran Drescher who holds her own quite well against Ackroyd. 
as far as I'm concerned, any film that winds down with a large-scale choreographed dance routine can't be all bad. And this one sees a host of people getting good and funky to some classic James Brown riffs, so there's a lot there to like. When viewed this way, the beauty of the film is, aside from the occasional language, Honestly, the sex is pretty much off the table. The ladies are never really shown in any compromising positions, with the exception of when they seduce Skridlow himself, and that's even rather tame. Everyone's in a bathing suit in a hot tub. Once again, we are entering into the territory of clean filth, where we're glossing over anything that could be objectionable, and instead we're focusing on talking around what the story is actually about. In some ways, it's an even lighter handling of an adult theme, taking an even more unrealistic and comedic tone about call girls, especially if you compare it to other films of the day, such as the marvelous film that came out the year before, Ron Howard's 1982 classic, Night Shift. This is definitely a film that you could watch with reasonably aged children, like, you know, an 8 or a 10 year old range, where they wouldn't pick up on the innuendo and they would be able to laugh at the scenes and they're old enough to handle some of the language. Which is always nice, because then the film can work on multiple levels of entertainment for a family. And honestly, again, the issue is more of the language of this film than anything else. So I can hear you out there right now. Chris. How was this movie received? Well, that's kind of a loaded question. You see, when it was initially screened for test audiences and for the studio brass, people were going nuts. Hype was incredible, and Hollywood publications were supported by the energy that was starting to buzz about this film. And they kept reiterating that Dr. Detroit was going to be the big comedy film for the summer of 1983. It was released on May 6th, 83, and it saw some fair to middling reviews at first from critics. Vincent Canaby of the New York Times, who is usually rather dismissive about such fare, commented that this is an entertaining slapdash comedy, and noted that while it's in no way a classic in itself, it's often amusing in the way that makes use of routines that are so familiar they seem classic. Canopy also did touch on one thing that does ring true. Aykroyd has some really great low-key comedic personality traits that serve this sort of thing very well, at least up to a point. Unfortunately, his apparent intelligence prevents this film from being turned into some sort of inspired lunacy. His character's feet are just too firmly planted on the ground, and that's both part of his charm and it's also a limitation on the film. Honestly, I'd have to agree with that assessment. Now, my favorite local punching bags, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, they had different takes on this film. Siskel falling on the side of considering this a two-star film, then basically summing it up as, well, they meant well. Whereas Ebert gave the film actually three stars, and he commented that it had a lot of funny moments. Okay cool. So New York says good, the Chicago boys say, alright, it's fun, we haven't really hit turkey status yet. When Dr. Detroit opened wide on May 6th, by May 10th, Variety was reporting that based on those first box office returns from the weekend, this was going to be the comedy and it was going to be everything that the studio had expected to be. Chicago alone saw box office returns that were $165,000 that was just from 22 theaters that were running the film. Clearly, they were on track to make a mint. 
What happened then? Well, the summer of 1983 did. Two weeks after opening of Dr. Detroit, they had to contend with a little picture called Return of the Jedi. And as other hits slowly came forth, Dr. Detroit slowly got lost in the shuffle of the summer. By the end of that season, the top 10 grossing movies of the summer of 83 were as follows. Return of the Jedi, Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games, Octopussy, Superman 3, Staying Alive, National Lampoon's Vacation, Blue Thunder, and Jaws 3D. Detroit just got pushed to the back, and it was sorted into a bin with a bunch of other films that were also expected to do well. Films like Curse of the Pink Panther, Smokey and the Bandit 3, Krull, and Steve Martin's The Man with Two Brains. Through a jaundiced eye, this film is remembered by many people as being a bomb. But it's important to make that distinction. I must say it's not the case. Dr. Detroit made enough to cover its expenses and came out with some profit. By the time all was said and done, it had grossed $10 million against an $8 million budget. I'm sure some sort of creative Hollywood accounting type would step forward and say, hey, you know, it really lost money because we spent so much money attempting to market the film to the Danes. But in reality, what makes this film seem like it did so poorly is a twofold rationale. First, the fact that it went up against such massive films that summer, and equally, they were all on course to be blockbusters themselves, and more importantly, second, those who were making the film bought into the projected hype that they would all be laughing their way to the bank. So no matter how much business this film actually did, it would have been seen as having failed against anything with those overinflated estimates of profit. So it goes without saying that wishful thinking teaser for a sequel, that was a non-starter by the time the summer had wrapped. Now, I'll say this too. To keep everything above board and to be honest with all of you, I'll say again, this is not a good movie. This is a fun, frivolous movie. And as the years have rolled on, it has seemingly become more and more fashionable to pile on hate for this picture. I'm not going to make any accusations, but right now this film is currently sitting at a 33% with professional critics on six reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's sitting with a 40% with audience members. And as I start digging into those audience members, I'm seeing people comment, it's kind of dumb, but funny, and then they give it two stars. And then I'll see other people saying, this isn't a very good film, and they give it four stars, which leads me to begin to wonder if people are even capable anymore of rating a film. It doesn't match with what you're saying. Dr. Detroit fell by the wayside and became somewhat of a cult. Not really quite classic, but more of a 2am, you have insomnia, and you have access to deep cable kind of movie. Such as in my case, you saw it on USA Up All Night. Rather than it being an entry that's going to show up in some sort of college film festival where it will be fun and it'll be endured by people and held up as being something you should have seen. There are some positives, though. This clearly didn't sink Aykroyd like it probably should have, and I don't say that with malice. I like Dan Aykroyd. 
No, instead, he was spared because right after he had shot Dr. Detroit in the summer of 82, in the fall of 82, he teamed up and shot Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and director John Landis. And when that was released in June of 83, it was the biggest comedy hit of the summer. And if you cite our aforementioned list, it closed as the third highest grossing film of the season. That protected Aykroyd and allowed him to have future wiggle room to go forward and do projects that were personally important to him. Uh, you know, like that little nothing story he was starting to write at this time that he called Ghostbusters. But that's a story for another day. Bonus for Aykroyd. He met Donna Dixon on set while filming Dr. Detroit, and while his character might have ended up married to Fran Drescher's, it was Dixon and Aykroyd who would end up marrying a few months after shooting wrapped in April of 1983. So if nothing else, Dr. Detroit would remain a life-changing event for the actor in a good way. The version of Dr. Detroit screened here at the LSCE was the 2005 Universal DVD that came bare bones, with the only touted feature being subtitles. Not even a trailer. Damn! But the film is exceedingly affordable, clocking in at $8.99 on Amazon. So, you know, you got that going for you. But. If you would like a copy of this on Blu-ray, the good folks at Shout Factory back in 2018 had put out their own version of the film as part of their Shout Select series, and this time they had actually given some decent features. Their version comes with director's commentary from Michael Pressman and then pop culture historian Russell Dyball. comes with interviews with Preston and features an astounding array of neat bonuses, like Radio Free Detroit, inside the Dr. Detroit audio press kit, which gives some 25-odd minutes of vintage interviews taken from LPs that were distributed out to radio stations to help promote the film's release. And on those, you get Aykroyd speaking on film, SNL, Blues Brothers, and on the then still recent passing of Belushi. Not to mention several interviews with Friends of the Doctor, which would include clips from Spielberg, John Landis, John Belushi, and Steve Martin. Throw in some musical cuts from Devo, theatrical trailers, radio spots, photo galleries, you got yourself quite a nice little package, and all of it can be yours for the low price of $22.99. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where to purchase your films. We just feel, in this day and age, it's still important to continue to support physical media, so that these fine companies who own the rights to the content we all know and love keep releasing it to us, the consumers. And isn't that really what it's about at the end of the day, getting more of what you know and love? Besides, and I'll say it again, this is not a great movie, but it's a fun movie, the likes of which can be enjoyed by those of us who just want a moment to turn off our collective brains, have a smile and a laugh, and sometimes that's really all you need to get you past a rough day. Based on that alone, what are you waiting for? Get out there, get yourself a copy of Dr. Detroit today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. That's going to conclude this month's return of... Wait, what? 
and next week is going to see us in a whole new month with a completely new theme. We called an audible on June, and that's going to see us return with what we are now calling Best Served Cold. That's our salute to some cinematic revenge stories, so we hope you'll come back and join us again then. As always, if you like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, but hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics here for you to peruse. We have recently been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, please simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. Or, hey, feel free to like any of the lists that we are a part of to give us all a boost in those rankings. More reviews and increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us all more searchable. And that lets us share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to have even a more personal interaction or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there. Wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.